0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language.
1: So that happened. It has been a truly foobar week for the Trump administration, who this week accepted the resignation of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in the wake of an unfolding investigation into Flynn's contacts with Russian officials, whether or not he told the truth about them and the extent to which entanglements with the Russian government can be found throughout Trump's political organization. Add to that the recurring theme of a quiet war between the White House and the intelligence community, and the worries only get wider. But how alarmed should we be? We're going to try to find out. Meanwhile, one of the more interesting things about Trump advisor Steve Bannon is that when he talks about the 2008 financial crisis, he can sound, well, a little like us, to be honest. At least up to a point, but there is an observable place at which our points of view diverge. And One person who has noticed this is journalist and author Thomas Frank, who joins us today to talk about this. Finally, as the Democrats rebuild themselves after the 2016 election, they've been debating the extent to which they need to shift their political priorities and alter a philosophy whose usefulness has seemingly expired. One way in which the Democrats can obviously reform themselves is to end their codependent relationship with Wall Street. But are they smart enough to do this? One person who is skeptical is The Week's Ryan Cooper, who joins us to talk about his recent piece on the matter. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Jessica Scholberg. Here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Is So That Happened, your favorite podcast, I'm assuming, should be. I hope it is. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. Boy, everything just continues to happen, and there's never going to be an end to it. And so many things we're not going to cover today because we can't cover everything anymore. It's impossible. But giving it the good college try, we have Zach Carter.
2: You know, I think it would be good if things never ended, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't know.
2: I'm anti Ragnarok. I'm anti apocalypse.
1: Oh, Ragnarok is a fun thing. You should not look. Ragnarok is it like good. Burning Man. We all go to Valhalla, and we we never want for booze ever again.
0: Who else is here?
1: Ragnarok is good. Uh, Arthur Delaney is not here. He is on. I'm not sp- Arthur. I know he's not. He's he's on staycation, mm. uh, and so. If you if you're a big Arthur Delaney fan, there's nothing we could do for you, but we're we're doing our best. And uh, I I think I would recommend our guest Jessica Schulberg as a perfectly great alternative to Arthur Delaney. Jessica, what do you think?
3: You make me sound like a consolation guest.
1: You're think, not a, you're not a consolation guest. Maybe you're a challenge to Arthur's hegemonic appeal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this is I, it. I for think Arthur. I'll be
2: honest. I think for this particular week. Jessica is a much more important guest than Arthur would have been. I'm not going to lie.
1: Yeah, man, because this has been the week of Flynn sanity.
3: That's pretty clever. Did you just come up with that? I
1: literally probably did, A, come up with it and also stole it from about 15,000 other people who said this on Twitter. Michael Flynn, he is out of a job. This is the man who we once described with you in our presence as probably the most terrifying person on Trump's foreign policy team and yet i am not sleeping as well as i thought i would hearing this news because of the ongoing contretemps between donald trump uh insane orange megalomaniac and the deep state people who spy and lie for a living ostensibly to protect us but they're unelected and so we have this like I feel like we're probably moving into some very dark waters.
3: I think that's fair. The the circumstances of Flynn's departure are not reassuring.
1: Crazily enough, Moby... Knew about <laughs> all of this.
3: Did you ever end up writing that piece? Mo- no, but Moby put on Facebook like a bunch of stuff he thought was going to happen. And so far, he's not—not r- not that he thought that he knew, because he, knew. he went to Washington. He talked to people in Washington, and he knows what's going. He, on. This is Moby
2: the electronic he musician.
3: <laughs> he
1: developed a lot of intelligence community contacts while he was scoring the Born Born trilogy movies, obviously, and they talked to Moby at his tea shop in Manhattan. So. <sighs> The upshot: Michael Flynn has had apparently uh, questionable, perhaps sanctionable conversations with Russian officials. He
2: lied I did not up- have sanctionable relations with those officials. thought you
3: said sexual?
1: Sanctionable? No, <laughs> oh, I was like, sanctionable? I totally well, that man catch up. You right don't back. know how. You don't know how deep this goes. Hopefully, it doesn't end there. <laughs> That's but um, next week's non-zero weeks. chance of everything. The. Um, And he lied to at least Mike Pence.
3: Poor Mike Pence.
1: About this. And so he's out of a job. And that's rightly so, correct?
3: But but let me point out, he's not out of a job because he discussed sanctions policy with the Russian ambassador potentially undermining Obama's policy while Obama was still the president, he's not out of a job because then he lied to the vice president about it and make him made him look like a jackass on TV. He's out of a job because all this became public. Uh, Donald Trump knew about the The investigations by the FBI and the NSA into these uh, phone calls. There was intercepted communications. Donald Trump was briefed on it. He didn't bother telling Mike Pence, like, hey, this guy made you go on TV and lie. He didn't bother firing Flynn until there was an escalating series of news reports that were spilling all these details out into the public.
1: And the details have gotten even more significant since then. We have the New York Times reporting that members of Trump's campaign were in constant contact with, uh, that was
3: CNN, I think, the, the constant. Sorry, yeah. yeah, it
1: was CNN, not the New York Times. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, everyone has their bit of the apples. Uh, right.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess for, for Jess, my question is, you know, what, what should we be – what should the public be concerned about or be interested Everything. in here at, at this <laughs> stage? I mean, I mean, this is – so you have Flynn resigning, you know, sort of forced resignation. Mm-hmm. You have these other people like Paul Manafort, uh, Carter Page, who – Roger Stone. Are, who are not involved in, officially in the Trump administration because of uh, you know, believed contacts with Russia. What – <laughs>
3: what I, I does the, this mean? I think the biggest remaining unanswered question about uh, Flynn's contacts with Ambassador Kislyak, I mean, I mean, none of this is surprising, like him calling the ambassador on the day that Obama sanctions the Russian intelligence community, um, Flynn calling him and perhaps delivering a message that says, don't worry, like we're going to take care of this later. Not terribly surprising. Uh, what What still hasn't come out into the open is just how – Many people in the Trump administration were involved in this or knew about this. It's sort of hard to believe that Flynn really acted as this like total rogue character within the administration when this is so in line with behavior that we've seen from the campaign in the past. Um, And as Zach was getting at, there's at least four people who are being investigated by the FBI, by the broader law enforcement intelligence community for having contacts with Russian intelligence officials in the year leading up to the campaign. So it's not like this just came out of nowhere. It's just what reporters have managed to get the most specific leaked details on. Uh,
1: John Schindler, former NSA analyst who now writes for Observer, uh, has suggested in Observer that the uh, – the spies have gone to war with the Trump administration, and, <laughs> and obviously you now see uh, Trump pursuing I, I had several simultaneous lines of attack on the story, one of which has been to uh, attempt to make the case that uh, the, the entirety of the intelligence agency has gone rogue against a legitimately elected president. Uh, to what extent should we be thinking about this in terms as like a deep state versus executive branch? It's that a good question because
3: it's it's easy for liberals or really anybody who's bothered by Trump to sort of relish in seeing Trump or Trump spokesman Sean Spicer get up and say, we have never had any contact with Russians ever. And Paul Manafort, who is like publicly like best known for helping a pro-Russian Ukrainian politician get elected. This guy is going out and saying, I've never had any contacts directly or indirectly with Russians. It's like. Give me a break. So it's it's sort of satisfying to see the intelligence community being like, well that's some bullshit and then leak it to reporters who sort of correct the narrative. Um, but as you pointed out, that does speak to a broader problem where we do have these people who operate in the shadows. They uh, they are not elected. Historically, uh, the left has been very critical of them sort of operating with very little oversight. And the idea of an intelligence community acting like rogue in a rogue way against a democratically elected president would would be terrifying. I think the question here is who – are you more afraid of and who do you trust less uh, Donald Trump or the intelligence community? And I don't have an answer to that. Uh,
1: you know it's worth pointing out that uh, if you' if you're if you're getting a little bit too geeked up about what the IC is doing to Donald Trump, you should remember it was the same people who uh, essentially made sure that everyone found out about Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, so you know this works both ways and uh, I, I feel I feel uh, like I said, I, I expected to feel a little bit better, sleep a little bit better at night, knowing that Flynn was gone. I don't know what to think about this.
2: Obviously- You, you might say that you're just sort of a little bit one state, two state- Oh, uh, you want to transition. <laughs> about wanna, it, right? You want to tra- <laughs> transition.
1: I am, I am a one state, two state, and I don't want to take away from the idea that-
2: Arab state, Jewish state. It's a great you happy, Seuss whatever, book. whatever they like. No,
1: no, no less a threat are, of course, Russian intelligence agents in this. But, uh, but yeah, so- uh, in addition to what's been going on with Flynn, the thing that's you know we should pay attention to everything and and obviously by the time you hear this the story may have changed significantly An- another big foreign policy moment uh, that Zach was alluding to really really subtly i almost didn't pick it up <laughs> is that uh is that uh donald trump uh did a one on one with uh with uh, uh with a bibi netanyahu this week and the great decider could not figure out if you prefer to one or two state solution in that it's, just,
3: it's whatever they like, whatever makes you happy. Right. I, I, I will point out that just before regarding
1: things like a businessman,
3: right? I will point out that just before stepping in to record this, um, Nikki Haley, I saw on Twitter said that the U.S. is absolutely committed to a two-state solution. Oh, I will say that memo. Nikki Haley has uh, <laughs> absolutely zero power in this administration. Um, but more broadly, what I would say about our Israel policy that will be completely relevant uh, for the next four years, I imagine is that we we have none. It's, it's completely all over the place. I mean, every time Trump gets out there and says something or some anonymous White House official says something, I get texts from people at the State Department be like, oh, they didn't consult with us on that. They didn't consult with us on that. that's not our policy. And then the next day you see somebody else going out and saying something that's completely the opposite. I mean, we would never see that type of just blatant contradiction day to day from members of the same administration before. This is, this is mind-blowing.
2: So uh, is it... I don't mean to be too pessimistic here or too cynical, but I mean, there are people on Twitter, people in the intelligentsia saying that this, you know, whatever Trump says by by just sort of waffling, shrugging his shoulders about the two-state solution, that means that it's basically dead. But was it really alive before that?
3: No, it was was very dead. Um, A story that I never actually wrote but should have um, was I interviewed several Palestinian activists and former Palestinian negotiators. Uh, when Trump was first elected, and said, "You know, like how how do you feel about this?" He's he's nominating this man, David Friedman, who's an outspoken critic of a Palestinian state. He's pro-settlements. Jared Kushner's donated money to settlement organizations. Like, we're, we're never going to see a two-state solution, and there won't even be this sort of consistent American uh, pressure on Israel to work towards this kind of like vague, seemingly unattainable goal. And most of the Palestinians I spoke to were like, great, like there hasn't been a Palestinian state in years. Like, where, where are you going to have a Palestinian state? Like, how do you, do you really think that Israel is really going to give us that? Like, what we need to work towards now is having equal rights on whatever sort of binational state exists so that we don't have apartheid. And if we do have apartheid, then it'll be a lot easier to call out for what it is when the U.S. is no longer pretending that this is sort of this limbo period as we work towards an eventual Palestinian state.
2: So everything's gonna be fine. <laughs>
3: that's that's one way to look at it.
2: So so Trump did say uh, in front of everybody, he turned to Bibi and he said, uh, "I'd like to see a cool it on the settlements." Um, does does that mean anything in a, in a public setting?
3: Um, I think it means as much as past U.S. proclamations of cool it on the settlements have been. I think um, normally Obama wouldn't just say that off the cuff in a presser. They would make a statement after that's like I've. Informed Israel that you know settlements are not helpful towards reaching a two-state solution, um, so I wouldn't is take that your it. That's not very good. I'm getting it mixed with my Trump impression. Okay, so the there's,
1: there's one way in which you're a little bit inferior to Arthur, but oh. we'll look past that. It's okay. It's okay. Continue.
3: I think what was important, what was interesting about that statement, is it sort of appeared like. He just sort of said that, and BB wasn't expecting it. You know, they hadn't necessarily sat down and, like, talked through all the issues and then had, like, you know, this is what we came out of. It sort of seemed like off the cuff he was just like, oh, yeah, by the way, like, cool it. (laughs) (laughs) Which I will point out is completely contradictory to what he said, I think, last – Of the month. It was last year, I think towards the end of the year, where he said Israel should go forward and build more settlements. It was almost <laughs> as if he was like in a construction mogul again. He's like, let's just keep building in the West Bank. Like, go for it.
2: It's almost as if he doesn't understand this issue yeah, and doesn't know what he's talking about.
3: It's
1: it a complicated one. It also doesn't really care to learn this issue. To briefly jump back to the Flynn situation, obviously, the way you could resolve a conflict between the executive branch and the intelligence community is for Congress. to uh-huh. so do something about it. Congress ostensibly oversees right. all of this. Well, you laugh, but OK. okay. All right, maybe I've gotten completely out of my skis. But there are, there are some. Tell me more yes. of how
3: you envision this congressional oversight over the Republican so president and the intelligence community. Laura
1: lopez and I did uh, report about how, at least in the Senate, you have some prominent Republicans who chair powerful committees willing to look into at least the matter of uh, Flynn. And on the other side, you have, of course, Trump-aligned – Republicans in the house who want to pursue a leak investigation and perhaps bring- Devin <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Jason Chaffetz and, um, Devin Nunes. And, and, and now Trump has appointed some private equity guy to apparently overhaul the entire intelligence community, which I'm sure they'll go along with. Is there, is, uh, is this any, is any of this, do you think is leading anywhere where we perhaps perhaps settle these scores? Uh, properly oversee and get to the crux of what wrongdoing was taken and and and, <laughs> and move on?
3: Uh, I think that is a long ways away, potentially even years. I mean, ugh, the Benghazi committee is a bad example. The, the 9-11 commission is a better example of like that a fact-finding thing years. that took two and a half yeah. years. Um, I think it's a good sign that we're seeing some Republican senators take this seriously. Uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, I guess, Marco Rubio. Blunt. Blunt. Blunt.
1: Blunt. Yeah. Um,
3: Burr. Kind of dragged his feet on this one. I'm giving him half of a shout out.
1: Corker's been uh, Corker's been a little bit more. Ag- Corker's aggressive. been a little more aggressive. The House
2: Republicans have just explicitly, like six different committees have explicitly voted against oversight for the Trump administration. C- who was it that specifically
3: said aggressive? we don't need to we don't need to interview or we don't need to investigate Flynn because the, this is all taking care of itself? That was Chaffetz. That was Chaffetz. That was yeah. Chaffetz. profile courage jam. right there. Right. <laughs> Um, My point was going to be that I think it is a good sign that some Republicans are coming around on this. I do think it's going to become increasingly um, an untenable political position for Republicans to keep protecting Trump from this. The more as it will inevitably happen, the more leaks that come out about who in his campaign has done what sketchy thing with the Russian government. Um, I think eventually we're going to see more Republicans jump ship. Um, my question is how <clears throat> thorough the investigations are, how much they're just for show. Um, the most substantial substantive ones will be in the House and the Senate intelligence committees where a lot of the work can be done behind closed doors, um, which is important, but doesn't really give the public kind of a factual accounting of what happened. So I think that's a lot of what still remains to be seen. This story- I don't think
2: Arthur could have said that.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah, good job.
3: But he, he could have said a dumbed down version of Trump voice.
1: Yeah, maybe. He could,
2: he could have told a funny joke. Yeah.
1: So this story obviously is not going to disappear as much as Trump would like it as to. Much but much as I would like it, to. Is it are, are Are we getting out of our skis to like suggest that we're into a full-blown constitutional crisis?
3: Well, I worry that
1: we're also wired to freak out that we're just going to start saying things that aren't necessarily true.
3: Really? I feel like I'm like losing my ability to freak out. I feel like everything – I'm like, yeah, that sounds like pretty standard insanity. I'm like, <laughs> I guess I'll write a story about it if if Sam really wants me to. Let's Um,
1: not not give Sam any Um,
3: (laughs) Constitutional crisis, we talked about this a lot when you saw Trump going on Twitter and yelling about the, quote, so-called judge who uh, wouldn't reinstate his travel ban. And then, you know, the obvious fear of that is he's basically suggesting that a federal judge who was appointed by a Republican president isn't legitimate and that his decision shouldn't be respected which worst case scenario sort of sends a wink, wink, nod, nod to law enforcement to continue enforcing his travel ban, even though the courts have ruled against him. And that, I would say, is the definition of a constitutional crisis, is where a judge's ruling is basically disregarded by the executive branch. Right.
1: Once again, it would take Congress to settle that issue.
3: Keep the dream alive, Jason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, the dream is on life support. All right. Jessica, you were great.
3: I'm sorry I wasn't Arthur.
1: You know what? I didn't miss Arthur one bit. I
3: missed Arthur a little.
1: Yeah. Well, you're you're. I didn't. You're alone in that. Hi, Arthur. You have one fan. (laughs) Sorry, Arthur.
3: (laughs) You just got fired.
1: (laughs) Uh, Arthur will obviously be back next week. (laughs) been replaced Uh, by Lou Gehrig. Yes. um, But thanks for being on, Zach. Thank you. You're going to be on, obviously, more because Arthur isn't here. Yeah. I'll see you
2: guys in, like, 20
1: seconds. Yeah. uh, We have a great show, so stick around. We will be right back.
0: Life is full of what-ifs.
3: Some awesome. Like, what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like, what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.
1: And we are back. And as always, we come back to a world in which the 2008 financial crisis looms over everything. And it's the big lesson to be taken from every part of politics these days. Uh, no less of time is now where it's relevant. Joining us to talk a little bit about this, Zach Carter. He's Hi, here. everybody. He's here. You know he's here because Arthur's not. We can't sub Zach out for Arthur. Nope. Yep. You're stuck with Zach this whole podcast and you're stuck with me this whole podcast this segment you're also stuck with our good friend and fellow uh virginia cavalier thomas frank welcome hey back yep good to be here you are back sir you must be doing <laughs> In a manner of speaking you must be doing something right man i hope to, i hope you take this as a as a sign that your work is being honored and cherished um we wanted to talk about something you recently wrote we were talking about uh steve bannon and his sort of uh eschatological worldview yes last week, and one of the things we mentioned is that as 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 nutball as bannon is it, it, there's there's a there's this element where he sort of sees the world in a in a sort of similar way to 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 Zach and I and properly informed by a massive financial crisis that happened uh, which ground ordinary people up in the gears of it uh And you've you've recently written about that, specifically about Bannon's worldview on the financial crisis. And I know you have something sort of like clarifying to say about that.
0: Well, first – the first thing to – okay, So the first – the the point that we have to make is that he he acknowledges that it happened. Okay. Yeah, different from <laughs> a lot of parties I could well, name. think Democrat. about this. This is the Republican Party. Okay, yeah. this is the party traditionally the party of the rich, the party of Wall Street, the party of, you know, although that's obviously been up for grabs uh, quite a bit in the last couple of decades. But this is traditionally is the party of Herbert Hoover. You know, uh, of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, you know, you go to Ronald Reagan, uh, and of George W. Bush. And it's a uh, it's 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 an a, an interesting thing. OK. It's it's a remarkable thing that one that it's basically I guess you'd say now it's leading intellectual or something. I mean, what would you call Bannon? I mean, he's the, uh, the I think
2: that's fair right now. I think he's the lead. I mean, clearly, Paul Ryan is being dragged by the nose. You know, by by this guy, yeah. like it or not. Yeah,
0: but he but he has a uh uh you know uh he's he's made a documentary about the financial crisis, about how it happened and how terrible it was, and for the first ooh twenty minutes or so of it, so I watched it and then I watched. Remember Charles Ferguson's documentary Inside about the financial crisis, job. Inside yes. Job, which is yes. um uh you know I've I've. Also watched more than once, and that is a very credible account. I think it has some a oh, couple yeah. things wrong, but it's a, but by and large it's about 95 percent right, right, and he talks to the right people, uh, and he talks to you know people who were involved in, in the trades, people who saw everything happening. you know he overlooks a few things here and there, but but by and large, his experts are the kind of people that you would want. They saw what happened and anyhow, so, so for the first 20 minutes or so of Bannon's documentary, which was made the same year. I don't know which came out first, but made at the same time. B- B- Bannon's documentary looks uh, exactly the same. Not exactly. It's not word for word. It's not, plagiarized not or anything. Exactly. What I mean is it's the same kind of stock footage, you know, uh, images of 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 uh New York skyscrapers of money being counted yeah. you know, of traders doing this and that, and he talks to a lot of the same kind of people, so we 're all has... sort of starting on the same foot yeah, yeah 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 and he he acknowledges the sort of baseline facts this happened right there' was this this uh housing bubble and then it got transfer- transformed into um you know collateralized debt obligations or whatever uh mortgage backed securities and it brought it almost brought down the economy it basically did bring it down he's um if anything more alarmist than uh, you know than the Charles Ferguson version, than the mainstream version, that's, but this was but this it it, it takes me back. So I was writing for the Wall Street Journal when when this stuff happened, and uh, you know the, there was this um, scramble among people on the right to get out in front of this thing because on the one hand they were obviously to blame for it. This was the Bush administration had uh, had desupervised this industry had had uh, you know the, the Republicans had been. You know, deregulating Wall Street forever. Bill Clinton also, you know, did a a whole lot of that, but with Republican help. Maybe the Bush tax cuts really yeah. poured fuel on the fire. With, yes, with it, well, there was the that, but 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 you also got to remember what Bush Bush is directly responsible for it because he desupervised all the regulatory agencies. So, I mean, he filled them with hacks and cronies and people from the. So you had the SEC just like the guy was. No one, no one even knew where he was when the when the crisis right. happened. Yeah. You know, he was you know, literally the birthday
2: serious. party when Bear Stearns bailout happened, That's and he right. wouldn't leave the birthday party. <laughs> <And> Wall Street Journal <laughs> reported
4: on this, yeah.
0: and so like, and you have this this string of Treasury secretaries who and uh, uh, Council of Economic advisors, people who don't know what they're doing and like have no idea, or they're from Wall Street, uh, like uh, Hank Paulson. Yeah, uh, and uh, these are people who had done everything in their everything in their power to let Wall Street do. Whatever it wanted, okay. They had turned. They had looked the other way while all of this crap was going on in the mortgage industry, scandal after scandal after scandal, and they hadn't done anything about it. Um, so, what does Bannon say about this? I okay, mean, does he this deal doesn't come this? up. Yeah. <laughs> this part of it, but here, I'm sorry, I got off track here. So, I was writing for the Wall Street Journal at the time, and there was this scramble among in in, in right wing world to get out in front of this thing it's like how can we how can we uh blame this on the other side the great how can god we failed. how can yeah how can we get you know, exactly the free market you we, we let the market do whatever it wanted and oh my god yeah, <laughs> look up. at what yeah. happened <laughs> and so like how can we get out of this and there's all of these different ideas were thrown around And uh, uh, Bannon's is one of those. And it really brought me back to those days. I had forgotten about, you know, so much of this this sort of crazy blame, uh, you know, blame mongering that these guys did. anything to avoid talking about what actually happened which was this massive deregulation of this industry uh you know and that that you know that then
2: uh, wait so what so what's Bannon's explanation okay i, I, okay, okay, know. I, was I just up really want to know yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so you're watching the movie and about you know, about 20 or 30 minutes in and he's like you know what well, we know the real answer the 1960s <laughs> wait what <laughs> a decade that's uh, forty years ago. Is responsible for what just happened? Yeah, and uh, and, what? and, and oh, okay. So so it gets a little weirder because I'm also something of an authority on that, right? Because my first right. book is my first book is about the 1960s and about the advertising industry and the youth culture and all this stuff. And his take on the 60s is is. Um, well, let's say ill-informed. Okay, we're being polite these days. Are we being polite? We
1: don't wrong. have to be polite. Wrong is fine. Yeah, you can yeah. just say it's wrong. It's, just, it's wrong.
0: Oh, it's preposterous. No, it's just it's not informed by actually reading any of the like standard works of, you know, history or anything on uh, it, or it, it, he doesn't oh, anyhow. He wants to blame the 1960s for it. How does he how does he contrive to do that? He says, "Well, the kids were spoiled then. The parents spoiled them. So They had this generation that went to Woodstock and they didn't understand personal responsibility." That's it. That is the extent of the argument. So he doesn't try to connect the dots between – like he doesn't show us that hippies – and he has all this footage of Woodstock, always footage of, of hippies dancing. It's like that's what they did in the 60s. I don't know if you're aware of this, Jason. Yeah, I don't know I, if I, you're aware I, of this, <laughs> Mr. Carter. They danced. I heard about Right? All that. the time. They were just like playing. It was like – you know, it was just like I heard fun about nonstop. Yeah. 40 years later, credit
2: default swaps. Exactly. Ah, boom. Boom. boom.
0: You figured it out. <laughs> And he doesn't make any effort to like all trace. was right there, the whole <laughs> he time. Makes, he makes no effort to trace, like to the say, stones say like 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 uh, like like uh, Hank Paulson, who really is responsible for this more than a lot of other people. Hank Paulson was a hippie. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say Alan Greenspan hippie. He, you know, he never even tries. I would love to see someone try to make that argument. That would be fascinating because it's so false, right? It's just like, but it's at least fun. <laughs> but he doesn't even try. He just says the 60s happened. They had these bad values. And then 40 years, a mere 40 years later. <laughs> we had a financial crisis. Yeah. So, therefore, um, the one caused okay, the other. Yeah. That is the extent of his reasoning. And then he brings out all these experts. Who then? Who then agree with this? That's some post hoc ergo so, propter what? <laughs> <laughs> Put that guy in the White House. Put him in charge of the of of everything. That, yes, I I pounded on the table. There we go. Next, I take my shoe off and pound on the table. So so
2: here's the thing. Uh, this is crazy is that, and wrong, right? That, but 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 look, there are. It, it's interesting to me that. You know, we now have Donald Trump in the White House, almost ten years after the subprime stuff blew up. More than ten years actually since the subprime stuff blew up. Uh, you know, there is not, you know, the, the story that you told at the beginning of this podcast about what actually happened is not necessarily like a common theme in the public discourse, and people are looking for some explanation for where things went off track, and I, I think. You know, for a while, people were like, "Well, it's the the Kenyan socialist Muslim president's fault." Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they're reaching for some explanation yeah. because they're not necessarily, you know, not everybody has a freaking PhD in economic history. Well, right? I, 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 and, neither do
0: I. I just read a lot of newspapers yeah. at the time. Well, I was <laughs> writing for one. You know, I mean, I, it was my business. I had to know. But like, but you know,
2: it, it's interesting to me that that Democrats still don't really want to talk about this as sort of like a foundational moment. In, no, they in, in still – exactly. OK. Well, that's –
0: that is – OK. So there's – you're skipping ahead to a point that I wanted to make later. But the the, the thing is that when you look at these right-wing explanations – and Bannon's isn't the only one. Glenn Beck was out there at the time. Sure, yeah. Glenn Beck really uh, – I don't know if you guys re- – sure, you remember this. He really captured the public imagination in those – in that really dark time. People were really scared. Uh, and he was out there. I remember every night on Fox News with this dose of fear. Do you remember mm-hmm. this? Yeah. And he Shock really caught, and he was on you know cover of Time magazine. He really caught the public imagination of this crisis moment. And the funny thing is, when you and I, who ha- have studied history, my I do have a PhD, but it's not an economic. Okay, forget that. <laughs> but we, you and I have read history, and we understand that something like the Franklin Roosevelt administration and the modern Democratic Party exist because they. Uh, were the solution to the Great Depression. They came into power as a result of the Great Depression and as a result of re- Republican, complete Republican failure in the face of the Great Depression. You know, they couldn't do anything about it. Herbert Hoover sat on his hands, wouldn't do anything. Franklin Roosevelt comes in, the great Democratic leader, uh, brings us the New Deal. You know, that's the story. And uh, he succeeds and he turns the economy around and he gives us the WPA and he, and he regulates Wall Street and all of these great things happen. And that is the foundation story. Story or even the foundation myth of the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah. It's a, a true myth, but it is their, that is their foundation story. What you know, the Democratic Party before Franklin Roosevelt, you know, we don't even know about like Grover Cleveland. I mean, Right. Who we, knows? We try
2: not to talk about it frankly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. some problems. Yeah, but yeah. that is
0: that is a Democratic Party. Okay, so where are they in all of this stuff and when this is going down in 08 09? And 2010, when Steve Bannon is making his movie, well, it's Barack Obama on the presidential throne and he has appointed Tim Geithner as treasury secretary and basically Larry Summers is uh, running the economic show out of the White House. And these are guys who are – one of them, Larry Summers, is a deregulator. This is one of the guys who is directly responsible for what happened. Tim Geithner is the guy that ran the bailouts from the New York Fed. Well, that has nothing to do with it. (laughs) What I'm saying is that Obama, Obama, who (laughs) should have been the Franklin Roosevelt figure in all of this, is instead totally compromised. And what's his narrative of the financial crisis? Do you remember what it was? Oops. (laughs) <laughs> there wasn't one. <laughs> there wasn't one. Right. I remember a lot he of talk, didn't want about, to talk about
2: it. There was a lot of talk in like 2010 about recovery, summer, and metaphors about getting the car. Oh yeah, the green, the, the, green yeah, yeah.
1: the green yeah. shoots. Yeah. Remember, the green yeah, shoots? remember the green shoots. Remember the green shoots. Remember the green shoots. Yeah, but
0: okay, there was all that about recovery. But what about saying what went wrong? Okay, this is like that's that's basic. That's fundamental. That has to come first. I'm
1: no gardener, so at first I thought green shoots were like parachutes. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> I don't, I don't, no green thumb here. Is that like sorry. A, go, yeah, a golden parachute? Yeah, i was only completely kind completely of different. Yeah, like I was, was like, like, what was that are that they talking the, about? For the age
0: of ecology? Yeah, I just didn't understand that at all. Then at some point, I was like, oh, green shoots, S H O O T S. He didn't have a narrative, an explanation, a myth. Right. And here's Bannon, and here's Glenn Beck, and here's all these other guys. They filled with the space. Their... Like, it's the 60s that yeah. did it. And the great thing about the 60s, okay, the great thing, the, the thing that makes it work. … is that he is using the same explanation that powered the culture wars. I mean it could have come right 1990s. out of – who is that guy slouching to Gamora? A uh, uh, Bork. Robert Bork, right? Or any yeah. any of the great culture warriors really of the not 80s too far and 90s away from
1: what David Brooks says about, you know, title yeah, changes. Yeah, but it, it has it has no stuff. connection
0: to reality. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It has no yeah. connection to reality. I mean, he does have a faint one. We'll talk about that. Are we almost out of time? We? We're almost out of time. Well, hell. Okay, you got to read listen <laughs> Liberal there is approaches. a faint connection to reality, but not in the way Bannon imagines it. Right. Yeah. But uh, uh but but he's got this alternative explanation that is ideologically very powerful because you've got this conservative army out there that's like, oh, my God, what went wrong? And he's saying it's the Alinsky and it's like, uh, uh, you know, they were uh, uh, Dr. Spock, right? All their parents were spoiling these kids back then. And they're like, oh, yeah. And that's the same reason that we, uh, you know, that we don't have prayer in schools anymore. And that's the same reason. Clinton that why Clinton killed Vince Foster. <laughs> yeah, that's the same <laughs> reason. that t... he. By the way, he never makes the connection between Clinton in the 60s, which you'd think is a that's an obvious one, right? That's if like. If you're going to make this the, if you're the gonna make argument, dunk. a layup there, At least. Yeah. <laughs> there,
2: there is there is i think unfortunately in here an argument that the boomers really are a screw-up generation that wrecked the world but we will have to leave that for another time thomas yes. frank so much thank you so much for joining us
0: you got it man yeah we will be right back
1: hello so that happened listeners i want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher on the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to. You should drop us an email at sothathappened at huffingtonpost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And we're back. So over the course of these many weeks, we've spent some time talking about the state the Democratic Party is in and what they should or should not evolve into in the face of Trump's successful presidential election win, and more importantly, Hillary Clinton's unsuccessful flat-out failure. We're going to talk about some more. Joining us now is Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And we are really pleased to welcome from the week, Ryan
4: Cooper. Thanks for having me.
1: Ryan, We, um, I I want to just jump right into it. Uh, you have uh, issued something of a Cree de corps uh, this week, um, pretty much outright saying that if the Democratic Party can't break off from Wall Street, they're pretty much doomed. Am I I overselling that?
4: Uh, I think that's – yes, that's basically my argument. If you look at Clinton's margins of victory, places where she did really well were unusual places for a working-class Democrat. She, she won Orange County for the first time since 1936. Blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. Upper, Upper East Side, you know, finance, sort of cosmopolitan liberals. And conversely, she got destroyed in uh, working class rural areas. Uh, black and white or Latino did worse than uh, President Obama in all of those areas. And so – the way that I've been looking at this is thinking of her coalition as having a serious some serious class frictions because they're supposedly, you know, they rely on black voters a lot to, to, to win uh, many states. And so um, if you have that plus a campaign where you're spending half your time huddled with the ultra wealthy for campaign contributions, as Hillary was, you foreclose some of the policy that you uh, would need to appeal to. Those working class and rural communities because, you know, you're you are necessarily having to pitch your campaign to some extent. And if you look at, you know, the Democratic platform was pretty progressive. But the things that she tended to emphasize, it was like, oh, we can't have $15 minimum wage. It's got to be 12 because we'll be too radical. We can't have, you know, universal child allowance. We'll just have this marginally more expansive child tax credit that's very complicated to explain and model she so, kind of just
1: pitch herself as, I will be a better manager of the status quo, which no one really currently likes. Anymore.
4: Right. And we feel kind of guilty about all these poor people who are in our coalition. And so we're going to give them a little few nibbles of stuff that we could never pass anyway, but we'll put it in the platform. And so, you know, my, my attitude is just ditch the Wall Street stuff altogether. What Bernie shows is you don't even need their money. You can just raise a perfectly respectable amount to run a campaign on small dollar donations and appeal to the massive animus there is against bankers for their you know, horribly unjust treatment and protection that they have received from the political class over the last eight years.
1: You know, people don't want to hear it because the Donald Trump as he ran was many things. He was – he he stoked a lot of white nationalism. He's, he had policies that are obviously rooted in bigotry like his anti-immigration stance. But the truth of the matter is I think that one of the things he pitched himself as – quite successfully was something of a class trader. He kind of indicated that he'd be a guy who would break up Big, big, big monopolies, monopolies of money, monopolies of power. I'm not saying that he's going to do those things as president. He's no, absolutely established not.
2: Obviously, he will not.
1: <laughs> he's, he's established a a, a, a a cabinet that looks kind of like that that Wall Street party that Kevin Roos infiltrated way back in the day, that Kappa Beta Pi thing. <laughs> Secret
2: society of, and, of billionaires. Yeah, and
1: let's not forget that his one of his first actions we talk about, we've talked about the Muslim ban a lot, but one of his first actions was to make uh, – it harder for uh, people to afford their home loans, yeah um, so there 's obviously a disconnect in what Trump is doing versus what he was saying, but he pitched himself really successfully as a guy who'd bust up big power monopolies
2: yeah, and I think one of the one of the issues here for the Democratic Party more broadly is that you hear a lot of calls for unity right now, um, and the calls for unity within the party. I mean to some extent they're coming from both the, the sort of Sanders wing and the Clinton wing, but a lot of them are coming from the establishment part of the Democratic Party, essentially begging the the left part of the party not to make too big of a fuss because we need to all stick together against Donald Trump. There is an interesting piece of reporting from Ed O'Keefe and Dave Weigel in The Washington Post this week uh, where a bunch of leading senators sat down with, with Bernie Sanders in a, in a private meeting and said, please don't let all of these protesters primary us please tell them please please direct them to republicans not towards us and i just find that uh, you know look nobody wants to get primaried, so it's not that shocking that they would ask sure. for this but one bernie can't actually control these people it's this this yeah. the, the protest the protesting is just happening right and two you know if what you really want to do is get bernie on your side Maybe you shouldn't have an elective war against his DNC candidate, right? I mean, there is currently still a relatively bitter and nasty fight to determine who will be the next DNC chair. That was just picked by the Clinton and Obama wing of the party after Keith Ellison was sort of decided upon as as a consensus candidate, someone who had supported Bernie Sanders during the election, someone who Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid wanted to get behind, as someone who could sort of heal this 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 wound from from the primary. Uh, I just don't think they have learned what went wrong. And and what needs to happen as a result? I think they're looking at at the Trump team kind of melting down at, at you know General Flynn as we were talking about earlier being dismissed and seeing okay, actually everything we did was fine. It's just the Republicans cheated, and so long as they don't get to cheat next time, we're going to be fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a sense that maybe there are some norms and antibodies helping to heal the body politic right now, but you can't just you can't just like you can't just like fight off the bacteria you've got to then protect yourself from the infection and i think that one of the big points you make in your piece is that wall street represents a different kind of infection
4: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you hear the Clinton people arguing that she won the popular vote. You know, so if there had just been if Comey hadn't intervened, then she probably would have won or a number of other things. But in terms of the general state of the party, it's in it's in the worst shape since 1928, I believe. If you look at uh, state legislature seats and and governorships and such, and they need a committed activist wing to kind of counter the, the Tea Party like core, which is why they, the Republicans have been able to dominate during midterms and off-year elections, you know, stoke their turnout, which comes more easily from older conservative white people who vote in these sorts of things. And and more, more than that, you know, Democrats have been deeply complicit in all this neoliberal deregulation and, and free trade policies and such that have in fact been horrible disasters across the board. You know, Clinton passed all sorts of of, of deregulation and so forth. And and it was a terrible idea. And so, you know, insofar as you think of politics as trying to actually cater to the material interests and needs of the people that you are serving in the democracy, Wall Street and, you know, the upper class writ large does not want the sort of things that most people in the country need, which is, you know, improved services, higher taxes on the rich and you know, no more huge financial crises. You know, one of the things you laid out in your piece around it, I really thought
2: was interesting. Was there's during during the primary there was a lot of talk about well, is Trump explained by racism or is he explained by economic inequality? And it was it was a dumb question because the answer was yes, uh, but, but <laughs> it was but, a dumb debate, right? Like the question could be posed, but the debate was pretty simple. The fact that it raged for like six months was really pretty pointless. Pretty pointless. Uh, yeah. But we now have. A situation. We've got all these Democratic protesters out there and you can see a pretty concerted effort by the party establishment to peel off all of the economic stuff from everything else that's going on. I mean, you saw Jennifer Palmieri on uh, on MSNBC a-, a week ago saying, you know, look, these people in the streets, they're people who are protesting Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus. They're not asking for fifteen dollars an hour as a minimum wage.
1: A ludicrous display. Just really
2: bizarre. Uh, and th- And then, you know, this when when sanders tweeted out you know we we cannot you know, have to be we have to be serious about wall street a bunch of these people on twitter you know, these you know clinton clinton people were like oh my god you're talking about wall street while we have all these other bigger problems with trump like what's wrong with you and i thought you made a great point in your piece that you know you can walk and chew gum at the same time here and if you're going to talk about race being a powerful factor in the united states you can't ignore the way that it intersects with economic injustice and the role that Wall Street plays in perpetuating that.
4: Yeah, exactly. You know, Wall Street is up to its neck in all of the, the sort of structures that disadvantage minorities in American society. And, and black people in particular um, have been, you know, during the, the financial crisis were – before the financial crisis, as to say, were specifically targeted, middle-class back fam- black families with horrible high-interest loans – There's a there's a court deposition where a Wells Fargo salesperson said that the the shorthand was mud people and they would give them ghetto loans that were deliberately terrible, even though they qualified for, you know, your regular vanilla mortgage, specifically because they're black. And as a result, the black white wealth gap, which was already really big before the crisis, has gotten even bigger because of all these things that were handed out. And then uh, after the crisis, the Obama administration's decision to basically stop enforcing the law with regarding uh, mortgages and to allow something like 9 million foreclosures to pre- proceed based on documents which were systematically forged also harmed all these communities that are clustered at the bottom of the economic ladder, disproportionately black and brown, though, though obviously lots of white people as well. They got hammered by this. And – you know, if you, if you want to talk about racial, social justice writ large, you cannot ignore the role that Wall Street and entrenched power in general plays in this. Yeah, one of the most fascinating things, I remember reading some old stats from like
2: the Center for Responsible Lending in like 2009 or something. And they were saying most subprime loans to minorities, minority families, were not, uh, you know, the first mortgages; They were refinances. So somebody already had a decent loan. That they could afford, they re- refinanced into an exploding piece of garbage, and then they then they lost all their equity. They lost their house. So like the asset that the middle class asset that they had, their you know they they had been able to get their 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 hands on was just gone. It was just totally stripped out, and and we just didn't really do anything about it. We just sort of let it happen, as, as you know the federal government did afterwards.
1: The, the the most interesting thing about all this, of course, is that you know I've talked about how uh, in the past it's time for. Um, it's time for the Democratic Party to tell the professional class to take a backseat to these things. Professional class Democrats tend to have a collection of sort of liberal social pieties that they hew to. And I sort of think that if you're going to tell a group of this constituency that you're stuck with us, it's got to be the professional class at this point, because where are they going to go? They're going to vote for Trump. It just doesn't make sense to me. I feel like what's happening right now in the streets is that ordinary people of all different walks of life who voted for all different people are very, very, very close now, closer maybe than they've been before, certainly closer than the Democratic Party has has led them to be, to finding common cause with each other. Uh and it's it was really I was just it was dismaying to hear Paul Mary try to get out in front of that and redirect things because I think that right now they have an opportunity for something bottom up. If they just sort of continue to forge the common cause that People are going out and fighting for right now. They're fighting Trump well, and, on all and, of look, different and, fronts. And
2: Palmieri is not wrong that there are, there are a lot of people who ordinarily aren't, aren't protesters who are out there, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you're trying to build a, a winning coalition, there just aren't enough Neiman Marcus shoppers to no. do it. I'm sorry. You cannot <laughs> win an election with the Neiman Marcus shoppers. That's what inequality means. There are no
4: people at the top.
1: Yeah, yeah. They just don't have the votes to do anything else.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, this, a lot of times you hear, you know, leftists will talk about how you know, you hear something like this and you're like, ah, this is the revealed preference. You're saying, you know, people don't want 15 bucks an hour because you don't want 15 bucks an hour. And you're trying to like quash this broadly popular thing to protect your sort of class position or whatever. But I think, you know, this was the real case against Bernie that the liberals are pretty squishy about was that if you nominated him, you would bleed off a bunch of rich liberals who would vote their pocketbook. And go Trump or you'd have Mike Bloomberg get in and try to split the vote to throw it to Trump. Um, But I think the number of people who would actually do something like that is pretty small. Super remote. Number one, because, you know, Republican Party is horribly racist. But number two, you know, there's all sorts of things you can do aside from 15 bucks an hour sort of, you know, a poverty policy that would benefit the way, way up into the upper middle class, you know, try having a kid in this country as, you know, a family making $150,000 a year. It's really hard because of our crappy welfare. There's, you know, universal social policies would benefit everyone. I, you know, Bernie always talks about basically everyone below the top 5%. And, that you know, you could totally build a coalition out of there. And there would be a little bit of frictions. But, you know, say like, where our fast food workers are getting fifteen bucks an hour, but you know, middle class people are getting access to decent, you know, child care, paid leave, and uh, universal health insurance. You know, the safety net that, that also catches you if you happen to lose some income or something like that. These people are they're totally wrong footed in the political moment and they're just repeating the same things that they've already always been saying for years.
1: I think that, you know, there's always there's there's always gonna be people who reflexively vote Democrat. There's always gonna be people who reflexively vote Republican, if there's a lesson to take away from what we saw in this last election, is that what moved a shit ton of people to the polls this time out was the fact that they're all in the party of desperation and they're looking for something, anything to change their their way of life and, and, their, and their fate right now. And Trump won those guys. Trump won them. And uh, going back to sort of Wall Street chicanery is not going to help bring them back to your side. Ryan, uh, it was a great piece, man. And we're really glad that you came on to share it with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And uh, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we are joined by journalist and author Thomas Frank, The Week columnist and reporter Ryan Cooper, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter and Jessica Scholberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, you can send us an email at sothathappened@huffingtonpost.com. at Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.